We were straight out of school. We were supposed to start our jobs at the end of summer, um, and we both ended up calling our bosses and quitting two weeks before we were supposed to start. We we really have n- no reason to be where we are today. We worked in finance. I think my skill set was Excel. Um, no background in retail, <laughs> certainly no background in fashion, running an e-commerce business, and we've really taught ourselves everything. But there's been many moments where we say, do we really know what we're doing? And the answer is often no, but we're going to figure it out. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, two women without backgrounds in fashion, they started out in finance, went to business school. They both had jobs lined up post-graduation, but they saw a white space in the fashion industry, started a class project. It changed everything. Instead of taking those jobs, they quit to start Bobble Bar. Amy Jane and Daniela Yakubovsky, they are the best friends behind the jewelry brand that started out as an online direct-to-consumer company and has since transformed into multiple brands. They're in retailers like Nordstrom, Bloomingdale's, and Anthropology. And here's the story of Bobble Bar. Amy Jane and Daniela Yakubovsky, welcome to No Limits. Thank you. Thank you Thanks for having, for having us. us. I'm so glad to have you with us today, co-founders of Bobble Bar. So I thought it could be fun because the, the company you founded in, what is it, 2011? Yeah. I thought it could be fun to hear the elevator pitch that you gave back in 2011 versus the 30 seconds, what is it today? Yeah. So what was it then? What is it now? Which one do you want to do, then or now? I'll do the now. You want to do the now? Yeah. Okay. So back then, the elevator pitch was that there was a ton of white space in the fashion jewelry market. Um, it's a product that women love to experiment with trend, to change their outfit, to change what they're wearing, but that everything in the market is either way too expensive or really cheap and not great quality. And we are filling that void. The elevator pitch today is we're Bobble Bar. We're a fashion jewelry and accessories brand. It's amazing now that so many people have heard of the brand and we don't have to explain what was missing in the market, why women want fashion jewelry, why they love it. And it's great that we've come so far from that. I remember the early days we would have to explain to people like we don't sell jewelry off of a cart in the mall <laughs> and we're not working out of our apartments. Um, but. Yeah. We're not like using wire cutters to like hand make You're not. these like little artisan pieces. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's an interesting point because when we first started, so much of what we were doing was explaining the why. And I think now we get to explain the what, which is exciting. Ooh, fun. So you guys met in investment banking, I read at UBS. I did investment banking at the start of my career. Did you hate it? You know what? We have the best stories. We both had very different experiences. I mean, the best thing that happened is we met. We met our first day. I met my husband. I always say this. We the best thing that. that came out of investment Aww, banking was my really husband. Sweet. Yeah. Uh, and you know what? I think for us, like, we it gave us a ton of grit. And it's been like yeah. the best thing, you know, going into starting your own business. Um, and we know finance really well. Yeah. <laughs> we always joke in a meeting that like someone could tell us something and we could literally do the math in our head, which is not a bad skill to have when it's you're a good building foundation, a business. But it can be a painful one. Yes. <laughs> I mean, 
It can definitely be a painful mm-hmm. one. God knows we have those stories. Um, but it does really teach you to just run through walls and figure stuff out. So, you know, we always say that when we're hiring, there are some roles where we're really looking for functional expertise. And there are some roles where we need people who will just be a ninja and figure things out. And we love hiring people who come out of that background because it really does train you to just figure stuff out. Absolutely. When you made the call to go to business school, did you decide you wanted to go together or was it? Totally coincidence. Totally coincidence. And it was like such a lucky, happy accident that like best friends, we ended up at business school together. Do you think it's important for people who are thinking about doing a career pivot? Is that why you went to business school, that you wanted to build a company or you you weren't sure? Both of us had no intention of starting a business. We had jobs after business school. This was a class project in school that we had actually just started doing because we wanted to figure out how to have less school hours and more time away from campus. So when did it become real? So it's so funny. We had the idea between our first and second year at business school, and we decided to basically spend our second year at business school doing nothing. Nothing but pursuing, you know, what is today Bobble Bar. And in your second year, you can do things like field study and, and things where you get to sort of chart your own path for what the class is going to be. So we basically figured out how to take as many classes as possible and basically get as much school credit as possible for just pursuing Bobble Bar and pursuing the idea. And it was such a great place to be experimenting with our ideas because we were surrounded by a class of a thousand of our peers who were able to give us advice, help us, connect us to people in their networks. And we were surrounded by hundreds of women who were our target market and could give us feedback on, oh, I like that. I'd love to shop that way. Or, oh, my God, that product's amazing. Um, As Amy said, we actually had jobs coming out of school and we launched our beta site about a month after we physically graduated um, from business school. And we just started seeing a ton of traction. Um, we started seeing all of these women that we didn't know shopping the site, buying the product, coming back and repeating. So, you know, obviously the first order was Amy's mom and the second order was my mom, which was expected. <laughs> but then we started to see these orders come in and we were like, I don't know who that is. I don't know who that is. And it started to feel like it actually was going to be something. Um, and that's when we realized that we had something really exciting on our hands. And and we we were like, hey, wait a minute, we could we could really do this for real. So did you were you working at a job at this point or were you just straight out of school or business school and and waiting to start other jobs? We were straight out of school. We were supposed to start our jobs at the end of summer um, and we both ended up calling our bosses and quitting two weeks before we were supposed to start. What was the conversation? Did you (laughs) I want to understand prior to that what you guys had agreed on? It was a tough one. I think for us, you know, we looked at it and we said, we have no responsibilities right now. We have a lot of friends from business school that really are going to be a great support network for us and we're going to give ourselves a time limit if this doesn't work out worst scenario you know we'll pick up the phone and we'll ask for our jobs back and maybe they'll give it but we'll find someone else and you know i think the calls to our bosses in hindsight you know i probably could have handled mine a little bit better um but you know now Uh i look you forget you know people hold a spot for you and in at work and they held that spot for me for two years did they yell at you they were very understanding. Um, they ended up investing in our business. And, well, that's great. Um, you know, I, I remember when I told my boss, I said, <laughs> I told him, I was like, this is your fault. Um, he started his <laughs> he started his business and he um, brought me over from UBS to a company called Center V Partners. And I said, listen, I saw it. And you told me to put our heads down and let's just focus on doing what we want to do. And, you know, we're going to look up and people are going to know who we are. And it was kind of in the weeds of that, that. 
I wanted to one day be able to do that myself. When Danielle and I were working on the school project, I mean, every layer we peeled back in this industry, there was something we're like, why is it working like that? And kind of felt like this was our moment to give it a shot. Um, and then our parents were just so supportive. Yeah. You know, I think they, um, I think absent that and them saying, you know what, <laughs> um, we didn't expect you guys to call us and say you're going to quit your jobs to to sell jewelry. Um, but just knowing that they um, believed in us, I think, was a really nice um, moment of encouragement for us to a, do it. I think that was a big push for the both of us because I think a big piece is also that we both have parents who are first-generation American, who are entrepreneurs, who built something from scratch. Um, and I think we both came from parents who really said, hey, listen, like – you're young. You have this exciting opportunity. If you don't do it now, you're going to regret it. So you should take the leap and you should do it. Um, and I think we're both really lucky that we, you know, we have people in our lives who would who would give you that encouragement. So the jobs are in the rear view. You've turned them down. What is your first? Oh, great moment. What have we done? You know, in the beginning, you're you're doing literally everything yourself. I've actually heard this phrase, which I will censor myself, but when you are a startup founder, the SHIT rolls uphill. Um, <laughs> and that is 100% correct. I mean, you are, you know, if the janitor doesn't come, you're taking out the trash yourself. You, you do everything yourselves. And in the beginning, when it was really the two of us figuring out if we had proof of concept and if we had something to raise money against, I mean, we were literally filling, you know, we were packaging orders ourselves and then we would stuff them into large trash bags and like Santa Claus, like walk our little sacks over our shoulders to the post office. And then it got to the point where it was just way too many sacks and we were spending like half the day doing runs to the post office. And we were like, we've got to figure out another way. Um, so it's, you you know, you have all of those moments, but I think that they really help teach you how to build a better business. I think every single thing that we do at Bobble Bar today, Amy and I have done ourselves and, and really mm-hmm. understood how to build the business. So it's, it's tough in the moment, but I think it's a really, really great learning experience. I hear that a lot from entrepreneurs that appreciation that you have for all the different functions of the job because you started it and because you played every single role early on you're more respectful and more responsible to your employees and your stakeholders you started all of this with your own savings right yeah when did you decide to raise money we decided pretty quickly to raise money i think part of it when we knew that we were on to something it was going to require more than our twenty five thousand dollars to get it off the ground um, and we had um, one of our best friends from business school. Her name's Alexa Von Tobel. She had started a business called LearnVest, and she was a couple years ahead of us, and she invited us into her office which to kind of be and work out of her space. Um, and through her, we met one of her investors, um, Teresa Gao, and she was a woman who, woman who loved jewelry, and she kind of heard what we were talking about. And I think we ended up raising a little bit sooner than we had anticipated. But finding those early, finding people early on who can see your vision, even when you can't completely articulate it yourself, was a, was really lucky for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's been by our side since. And but raising money was a really interesting. It was really interesting for our for our business. What's the number one thing you learned from that first fundraise that you wish you knew prior? I think one of the first things that we thankfully realized early on is that we were pitching to a lot of people who were not necessarily our target audience. 
And it was tough for them to put themselves in the shoes of a buyer and understand the need. So, you know, you have these meetings, you have exactly one hour with these folks. They have really, really busy days. And you've got this deck, you go in, you, you know, you want to spend 10 minutes, you know, going through the first two slides and explaining the market opportunity. Then you want to spend the last 50 minutes really talking about what you're building and why it's important, why you're excited about it. And we had one or two meetings where we spent an hour validating what the jewelry market is, how women shop it. Are we telling you the truth about this target consumer? Is this actually how women shop it? And I think we had this light bulb early on that we had to help them see and experience how the, the target consumer is shopping this category before we even walked into the room. So after that, we actually started sending thank you packages to the administrative assistants who were setting up the meetings for us as a thank you for all of the back and forth and for, for helping us. Um, and what it did was it allowed a lot of the investors to watch the women in their office who were definitely our target market, open the package, touch and feel the product, and they would watch this moment of like excitement spread across their office. So when we came in, instead of having to explain how women you know, react to the product, they had just watched it for mm -hmm. themselves. And it allowed us to really fast forward the conversation because they immediately understood what the opportunity was. And then we got to spend the bulk of the meeting explaining, you know, what we were doing to address it. That is so smart because I know, and I hear this all the time here, there are so many women who are pitching predominantly to male investors. And oftentimes, a lot of women here will say that they'll hear from the VCs, oh, I want to ask my wife what she thinks about this. And there are definitely women who have sat here who have said, I hate that because the the fact that I, I'm coming here, I'm pitching you and I have to rely on what somebody who's not in this meeting says to you far away from this whole thing. So I think that's so smart that you figured out a way to to really make it understandable and relatable to them before they even before you had to face that issue in the conversation. Thanks. How do you know how much money you want to raise in the beginning? How did you come to that? I have no idea. I think someone <laughs> said this is how much you raise when you raise a seed round. Yeah. You know, in hindsight, which is how much? I think we raised a little over a million. Yeah. I'm sure those numbers have changed over the years. You know, I you know, looking back on it, so many people have built amazing consumer brands without following the path that we did. Uh, and they've done it with $25,000. And I think we look back on it sometimes and we say, I wonder what it would have looked like if we had done that. We might have um, made, been a little bit more disciplined. We might have been a little bit more cash constrained. But maybe we would have gotten to where we are today faster, which mm. is, um, you know, we worked really hard the past few years getting the business to a place where it's really healthy. And when you have a lot of capital in front of you, you we always joke it's like shiny penny syndrome. Um but I don't know. I don't know if you feel the same way. Yeah. I mean, I think in general, when you when you start to fundraise, there there tends to be a bit of a rule of thumb, depending on what what series or round that you're raising, like roughly how much you should be looking for. Because obviously, if you're raising your seed round, while you would love to have ten million dollars, I don't know how many people are going to seed you with ten million dollars. Um, that might take a while to close <laughs> that might, seed round. It might take you a really long time, and I don't know that you're going to love the valuation and how that works out for you. <laughs> um, so I think there, you know, the benefit is there is a market. 
So you tend to have an idea of where other deals in the space are closing and you can get an idea of a general range of how much money people are, you know, feeling comfortable kind of backing for a seed stage company that's in this kind of space. And and obviously, anytime you're talking about valuation um, and fundraising, whether it's, you know, a private company all the way up to a public company, obviously, most people look at, at market comps because that's usually what your investors are, are looking at as well. Um, so I think that that does tend to be where you start. But then again, to Amy's point, you know, obviously, you know, investors are definitely encouraging people to kind of raise as much money as they as they can. And I think one of the things that we've really learned and I think we've been really disciplined about as founders is that's not always great for the founder. And I think as careful as you can be about raising capital and as scrappy as you can be about growing in a really smart, capital-efficient way, um, it really benefits you and it benefits your team. Um, So that's something we spend a lot of time thinking about. Explain why raising too much money isn't always great for the founder. More No Limits after this quick word from our sponsor. Brought to you by Indeed. Used by over 3 million businesses for hiring where business owners and HR professionals can post job openings with screener questions, then sort, review, and communicate with candidates from an online dashboard. Learn more at Indeed.com slash hire. There's a lot coming at you right now. Turmoil, tweets, an insane amount of chatter. I'm Brad Milkey with ABC News, and I am here to throw you a lifeline. It's a new podcast called Start Here, where our experts give you on-the-ground access to the biggest stories of the day. We're going to give you some context, some clarity among the chaos. 20 minutes every weekday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and start here. Explain why raising too much money isn't always great for the founder. Sure. Um, You know, raising money, even though we call it equity, it's debt on your business. It's money that you have to pay back. Um, And a lot of people, especially folks who don't have the benefit of coming from a finance background, don't think about that. Um, It's not just money free and clear. It is something that you have to pay back before you get to split up the equity pie. Um, If you have a difficulty, if you have a difficult time raising money, sometimes that payback, which is referred to as liquidation preference, sometimes it's not as plain vanilla as one time. It can be two times or three times. Um, And then I think the other thing a lot of people don't talk about enough is that, you know, when you raise money at an extremely high valuation, that can really limit the exit opportunities for, you know, for the company at the end of the day. You have to get bought or you have to go public. Yep. And you have to achieve a value that either someone will absolutely be willing to pay for or that the public markets will be willing to pay for. Exactly. And it just limits what you can what you can do at the end of the day. You know, the bigger price tag that you put on that company, um, the more limiting options you leave for yourself at the end of the day. You can build a really successful, incredible company um, and really focus on having the biggest outcome as possible at the end of the day and still leave yourself a lot of room um, for flexibility and getting to call the shots on what that outcome should be. Where along the way did the two of you decide between each other, this is my role, this is your role, and this is how it's going to work? We always joke that the things I love to do, Daniela runs away from, and (laughs) vice versa. We have very complementary skill sets, so it was really obvious from day one. And then, um, What are the things you love to do and what are the things you love to do? Daniela's very – she's – very creative and coming up with marketing concepts and thinking about our brand. Uh, I love kind of the operations side of our business and, you know, the development of our product and thinking about where we're going to sell it. 
And it's been really nice. You know, over the years, you know, I've learned a lot from Daniela and vice versa. And we've found ways that we can both flex into each other's roles. Um, but it's also been really great as we built our team because uh, we found people that really complement the two of us um, in a really nice way. But we feel really lucky. I mean, there's a lot of best friends that can't do what we do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we and I, I just love it. I mean, it's just it's really lucky to have someone um, sitting next to you all day for the journey of this and then also turn to just talk about life. Um, it's nice to have your best friend sitting there constantly. I could tell the listeners it seems like a legit relationship behind <laughs> <Yeah>. the scenes. <laughs> they walked in perfectly friendly. This isn't just for the just for the recorded session. <laughs> no, definitely not. I mean, to Amy's point, I think what's really nice is at the end of the day, you know, we started this together. This is our baby. And when we're going, you know, when each of us is going through a tough moment, whether it's in our personal lives or professionally, at the end of the day, what we want to do most is just grab the other person, sit down in a room and hash it out together. Um, and we really do have that kind of supportive relationship and friendship. It's really comforting to know that you have that other person literally sitting two feet away from you that you can just sit down and brainstorm with and kind of figure things out. And again, to Amy's point, like on the car ride up here, we actually weren't even, I mean, we talked about work for like the first five minutes and then we were just catching up on our weekends and talking about like, you know, what we did and our families are close and, and it is a really genuine relationship. And it's, it's nice when you have that 20 minute ride up to be able to just like take a minute and take a pause and just talk about life. I think you're lucky because not everybody can find that. No, we're extremely lucky. Yeah, we're, we're extremely lucky. lucky. What do you do when you disagree? What's like a really big fundamental disagreement that you've had over the years and how did you get through it? The first thing we do is we don't talk about anything over email or text or anything like that. That is like one of those rules that we've had since early days because so much gets lost, especially tone yeah. and Sometimes I don't know. We're just like that's one of our philosophies. We just didn't talk it through, and I don't know. It's really funny. Even if we, I don't think we've had really fundamentally disagreed with a lot of things that are core to the business. But if there's things that we don't see that we think that we maybe take a different path to, uh, we are really able to talk it out because we really do see things from different perspectives. And often there's goods in both of those perspectives, and it ends up. And not what I want to do and what do you want to do, but in a different place. That's actually a little bit better. I think one of the things that's always really helped is, is kind of twofold. One is we are both extremely, extremely logical people. I don't think either of us would ever hang on to a personal opinion if there was data or information to support something else. So I think the fact that we both have a similar approach really helps us talk things out in a productive way. And then I think the other thing that that's really helpful is we both really respect the other's opinion genuinely. So if there's something that we genuinely disagree on, my first thought isn't to be like, Ugh, why doesn't Amy just see it my way? My first thought is, huh, I wonder what Amy's seeing that I'm not seeing. And I want to sit down and have her explain it to me so that I can make a better and more informed recommendation on how we could potentially move forward. And I think that both of those things combined have helped us to sit down and kind of hash things out in a really productive way. So that to Amy's point, we usually land on an answer that isn't either of the first two suggestions, but is some sort of combination of the two. Um, and that's usually how we move forward. What's the toughest lesson you've had to learn along the way? I think not to doubt ourselves. You know, we we really have n no reason to be where we are today. We worked in finance. I think my skill set was Excel. Um, no background in retail, <laughs> certainly no background in fashion, running an e-commerce business. And we've really taught ourselves everything. We're fast learners and we're going to be really we're always been really honest about what we don't know. 
But there's been many moments where we say, do we really know what we're doing? And the answer to the truth is often no, but we're going to figure it out. And I think that that's whenever one of us are having those moments, we always remind ourselves of that. We have figured out so much and we're very capable. We're very hardworking. We do not shy away from a long day. We're going to read up anything that we need to read to figure out how to solve this this problem. And you know what? We're really equipped to do it. And I think that that's been um, a really good thing for us. I agree 100%, except I would not downplay the joy that Microsoft Excel brings to my life every day, even in our current roles, because I'm that nerdy and I'm proud of it. I respect that. I'm a big fan myself. (laughs) What's the worst advice you've received along the way? Worst advice? Um, You know, I think in the first few years when we were really kind of starting from scratch, we got the same advice from a lot of different people, but packaged a little bit differently. Um, but the the core message was the same, which was fake it till you make it, use smoke and mirrors, make it seem so much bigger than it is. And I, you know, Amy and I heard this advice a, a couple of different times, and it just felt so not like us, to be honest. That's just not how we operate. That's not who we are. Um, and... We chose not to follow that advice. How did you respond when you got it? You know, I think we just kind of smiled and took it in and just, you know, you we thanked people for the advice. Um, but we didn't, we didn't, you don't, we don't necessarily take <laughs> Amy's everything. Amy's laughing right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's really interesting. We always, we'd always joke sometimes when we get those, that advice during fundraising meetings, you know, those meetings are also a two-way interview. And sometimes when we would get that, we were just like, you know what, this isn't, this doesn't seem like the type of people we want in our family. Yeah. Um, Cause it's not the two of us, but not a good fit. So you smiled and nodded and then you decided no to disregard. You. Disregard. Disregard. You know, I think as founders, it's really important to kind of find that right balance between, you know, we don't want to have blinders on. We don't want to not, you know, take in really good feedback and really good advice. So we do really listen to everything that that people tell us. But we also want to have enough conviction and confidence in what we're doing to filter through some of that advice and say, you know what, either we don't think that's right for the business or that's just not the right advice for, for us as people. And I don't think we'd ever really want to follow that. So we do take it all in. We do listen to everything. And then, you know, we get in our taxi on the way home and, and we, we we hash it out between the two of us. Oh, I thought you were going to say we bash them. <laughs> <laughs> I would never share such a thing on this podcast, Rebecca. Amy and Daniela, thank you so much for joining us. Thank Thanks you so much. Us. Thank you for having us. All right, it's the end of the interview, which means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our amazing listeners. And this week, we're featuring two of you, Melissa Harper and Christy Keswick. They were nominated by Katrina Youts. Thanks for the nomination, Katrina. Melissa and Christy are the co-founders of Good Sports, which is a national nonprofit that provides sporting equipment for kids in need. And these entrepreneurs caught our eye because... As any mom or dad who's listening right now knows, youth sports can be insanely expensive. And Melissa and Christy, who are natural problem solvers, their first job out of college was consulting. That's where they met. They decided they wanted to address that problem with a solution, redistributing extra sports equipment to local kids in need. And so far, their organization, Good Sports, has donated, get this, more than $26 million in new sports equipment, footwear, and apparel to nearly 5 million children in all 50 states. So here they are to tell you more about it. 
Hi, I'm Melissa Harper, CEO of Good Sports. And I'm Christy Keswick, CEO of Good Sports. At Good Sports, we donate sports and fitness equipment to kids across the country. The equipment we donate is brand new equipment from the sporting goods industry, solving a problem for both the industry and the community at the same time. And that equipment goes to high poverty communities across all 50 states. And we do this because we believe kids who play do better. They do better socially, they do better emotionally, they do better physically. If you want to be a part of the solution, go to www.goodsports.org and buy a piece of equipment for a kid today. What an outstanding story. I love this. Well, congratulations, Melissa and Christy, and best wishes with Good Sports. I love what you're doing. Remember, you can head to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more of their story. And don't forget, if you or someone you know should be featured here as the No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, that was my phone. Maybe one of you just emailed me right now. Or you have career questions, you can send them to me here at No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. I read them all, and I know how busy you all are, so when you do write, I really do appreciate it. I also want to say thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you who've been leaving us reviews like this one from Joanna Martins. Love the podcast. It's so helpful to hear from other successful women on the challenges and lessons learned while they set to change the world. Rebecca is entertaining and articulate. You'll love this. I love this. So does my phone. (laughs) Thanks, Joanna. And I agree. I think you will love this. As always, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Rebecca Jarvis. Don't forget to use the hashtag No Limits Podcast. And finally, a shout out to the team here that helps make this happen week after week. Producer Taylor Dunn, editor Michelle Boncardo, research assistant Annie Osakwe, and the ABC radio team, David Rind, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.